Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 86. My guest this week is Chloe Benjamin, who is an author from San Francisco. Her first novel, The Anatomy of Dreams, came out in 2014 and received the Edna Ferber Fiction Book Award and was also longlisted for the 2014 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Her second novel, The Immortalists, is out now. And it is such a beautiful book, I must say. I was so thrilled to talk to Chloe about this, and I'm excited to announce that TV film rights for the book have already sold to the Jackal Group, which we talk about on the episode. Chloe is a graduate of Vassar College and the MFA in Fiction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She also teaches workshops on the business of publishing, from writing a novel to finding a literary agent. She currently lives in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm delighted to have Chloe on because we found a lot of similarities, as you'll see in the episode, but her writing manages to bridge the gap between beautiful and suspenseful, which is a topic I think is really important to explore, and we love talking about it on this episode. She's a real inspiration, and we'll link to her website in the show notes because she has wonderful articles, including one we discuss about the myths that follow writing a second book. And in taking them apart in the article, I hope it causes everyone to challenge myths that come up around writing and what publishing allows and doesn't allow, because I think her skillful way of addressing it was really wonderful. So here we go with Chloe Benjamin. Hey, Chloe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you about books and writing. Yes, I know you're you're deep deep diving in both areas. Well, I want to start with one thing before we dive into The Immortalists, which I adored, by the way. So I definitely want to spend time on that. But I I do want to reference something which I, I loved that you wrote, which was an article for poets and writers about selling your second novel. Since we're talking about a second novel here, and there's such a cult of the debut author. Mm -hmm. Um, that exists. And it was amazing to me to read in that article that there's not even only now where there's starting to be prizes directed at second novels, which to me seems an even harder task to overcome than the first novel, which you kind of get to, to toil around on in private before it ever comes out into the world. So I'd love if we could talk if, about a couple of myths that you you shared in that article. And and what you actually found to be true, because this book has such buzz and excitement around it. It's been on all these lists that I've seen about like one of the most anticipated books of, of 2018. So I thought we could dive into that for a few minutes. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I love talking about 
the second book phenomenon and this being a second book in particular, because you're right, there is this cult of the debut. And while I think it's really exciting to come out with a debut, I'm also really proud to be a second time author. I always try to tell the story and we can get into this in more detail further down. But I also had a book that I wrote before my debut that got me an agent, but did not sell to publishers. So this is The Immortalist is the third book that I have written. And it's really so fulfilling to see this one taking off because of how hard I I worked to to make it here. And so my debut was I had a great experience. I loved my editor. I I really feel very lucky for the coverage that we got for that book, but it was definitely a smaller publication and uh, it was a paperback. It just, it didn't have the same momentum behind it. And so this experience has been totally different and totally wild. And, and I saw that it's already been optioned. It has. So that was really crazy. Um, that happened right after we sold it to a publisher, actually. Uh, you know, the, the fields are kind of connected. There are these uh, scouts that work for uh, production companies that keep their eye out for books that might appeal to, you know, movie makers or TV makers. And so that all came together sort of shockingly quickly. It was not something that I expected, but uh, the Jackal Group, which is headed up by Gail Berman, uh, they're fantastic and they are in the process of developing it for cable. Amazing. I think it would actually be great for that. So that's very exciting. Yeah. But, But I mean, I think that flies in the face of one of the myths that you talked about in that article, which was that, oh, second novels don't get the same kind of coverage. You know, people aren't as interested if your first book isn't like an explosive mm-hmm. bestseller, then there's then there's no chance. Yeah. And and that is clearly not true in not only in your case, but in others. I mean, a great one you mentioned was Hanya Yanagihara's A Little oh, Life. Yes, which, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I love that book and I love that phenomenon. And I think one of the things I wonder if this happens to to transition over to talking about the immortalists is that I feel like every author, and I could see this a little bit between your first book and your second in terms of the topic, that there is this, there are themes that kind of pull at a writer and that you get to keep exploring them more and more deeply as you go. And I'm wondering if you saw any crossover um, between your first book and your second, mm-hmm. one of which I saw was like the, con- you know, the crossover between science and mystery. Yes. Um, yeah, you're right. You know, it's so interesting because I've I continue to kind of find myself working on these projects that look at a kind of fringe science community and in, in the first book it's people who are looking at lucid dreaming, which is knowing that you're dreaming while you're dreaming and trying to use that as a Uh, type of therapy for people who have really dangerous sleep disorders, which by the way, was something I just totally invented. And then (laughs) I wondered, I was like, this is so cool. Yeah. I was like, I never heard about this. I mean, that took a lot of, a lot of work to figure out how that was going to work. And, and then in the new book, um, the eldest sibling Varya is a longevity researcher. So she's trying to extend the human lifespan. And I will tell you, I took almost no science classes in college. I, I think I'm much more interested in science theoretically or philosophically than actually. Like I was a terrible science student in high school. I remember like my chemistry, I just, 
you know, it, like my grades were awful. I couldn't, I, I just, I remember talking with my chemistry teacher about, you know, the orbiting of electrons around an atom, which I may have just totally gotten wrong. There's probably some science person listening to this who's like, oh my God, this woman is like not with it. Um, but I, but I was like, but I why? assure you, this is not, this, this is not this, that this audience. This is not <laughs> in the science community. Yeah. There may be some, but I think you're pretty safe here. Um, but yeah, I was like, but why do they do this? Like, I can't, I need a narrative. Um, so I don't know why I, I, I think there's something about really fantastical scientific research that feels like it it meets that border of magic. And that's a lot of what this book looks at is the relationship between religion and magical thinking and science and how they all offer different ways of coping with the unknown. Yes, I, I really love that as a non-science thriver myself. <laughs> Um, I don't know how else to describe that. I, I don't want to say like I'm bad at science. I just didn't, I, I didn't thrive in that world, but I am similarly fascinated in it. And so I found it really satisfying as a reader. Oh, good. Yeah. And, and so to go further, I mean, another thing that was said about both of your books, and I think is accurate, is that there is this almost um, thriller-like pace that pulls you through. I mean, I could not put The Immortalist down. No. It was over New Year's. I was like in there. I was just like, nope, got to read this book. And I think that that's an unusual thing for, for someone to say about a literary mm. novel. And it kind of addresses this interesting thing, I think, which is when you pull kind of qualities from other genres that we associate as outside of literature into literature, what happens? Mm. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. And I think one thing that I realized with this novel and what I gave permission my what I gave myself permission to do was to really follow I mean it sounds so cheesy but like follow the heart of the book and not worry so much about how it would be classified I think with my first book I felt really like I really want to write literary fiction and I want to make sure that people know it's literary fiction and even though I'm really proud of that book I think there are places where it's uh labored or um like overly subtle, like I, I'm not, uh, I'm not letting things really breathe. And in this book, I just, I, I kind of turned that chip off in me. I didn't worry so much about, you know, oh, if this is melodramatic, or if this is sentimental, are people not going to think it's serious? And I think the result is that it's, it's a stronger book. Uh, so, you know, I still, I guess I still have some chip on my shoulder about wanting to be seen as a, as an author of literary fiction. And I think this is that, but I also think the reason why it's gone wider than the first book is because it has a propulsive plot and, uh, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong about that. We have to remember that as literary authors, it's okay to tell a real good story. Yes, it is. And I think that's, I think that's fascinating that we think, it's not okay to tell a real good story in in literary fiction. I mean, your plot, which I, I think we should say for the listeners, is is pretty amazing. Which is that, if I may summarize, yes, there please. are four siblings who, at a very impressionable age, visit a woman who is sort of presented to them as a, a fortune teller who's able to tell you the day that you die. And they each visit her individually. So they're not all sitting there together. Mm -hmm. And then this information 
informs the rest of each of their lives. And you kind of follow them each through these phases. And another question, which I thought you, you never overtly posed, but was present to me in the whole book was, would their lives have been different had they not known this information? Mm -hmm. Like did the date she gave them then define them in such a way that she was sort of propelling them towards something as a result of that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that it's impossible not to be affected by that. And it doesn't mean that everybody would be affected in the same way. But I think especially learning that information as a child, when you have this openness to the sensational or to what seems kind of unbelievable to adults, I think it would plant. And so I wanted to explore the way that it plants in each of them differently. I really wanted each of the siblings to have a slightly different orientation to the prophecy. So some of them, you know, claim they don't believe in it. Some of them really use it as an instigator so that they can pursue what they've always wanted to. And, but yeah, as you say, I think, I think it, there's no way it wouldn't have some effect, but just what that effect is would vary. Yeah, it's, it's interesting in some ways how compulsive the knowledge becomes for each mm. of them. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something, it's, it works in such a way. So of course you're pulled in. So of course this becomes more suspenseful. And it's a beautiful device within, as you said, a literary novel. But I think in some ways the strongest books are the ones that pull the best things from all yeah. genres. Yeah, I think you're right. And the books that really shaped me and the ones that I love. It's only been in doing press for this book that I have seen how much they influenced it. And I'm talking about the books that I grew up reading. And I, I feel like I grew up in this kind of golden age of young adult, uh, you know, the 90s when you had um, Philip Pullman, the, the Golden Compass. And oh, Philip Pullman. Uh, still, like, those books are, like, some of my favorite books of all time. And by some of my favorite, I mean, like, probably top three. Like, they just, they're so incredible. Um, a Wrinkle in Time. You've heard the audio, right? I've what? Have you listened to the audio of them with the full cast? No. Oh, my God. Ooh, okay. I might have to do that because I, I want to reread them before I read The Book of Dust. So I've reread The Golden Compass, but I haven't reread the second two yet. Oh, my God. Try the Ooh. audio. It is unbelievable. Oh my gosh. So they have like a full, they have a full cast of characters? A full <gasps> cast. They have oh. actors reading each of the parts. No, that book... That book, particularly, I mean, the, the lead up is so brilliant and the characters. And I was so sad when they made the movie and they only made the one. But um, anyone who has not read The Golden Compass is going to be like, you guys are giant nerds no, listening to this. You have to read it. Like if you, you have yeah, to read it's it, it's the best, like there are some of the best books of all time. And oh, my God, absolutely. Yeah, I've read them like three times now. And they're just as moving to me at almost 30 as they were at 13. It's a, it's amazing. Well, did you, did you see the movie? I didn't because everybody told me it was horrible and I didn't want to I didn't want to have it in my head. Did you did you like it? I, I did. Well, I mean, yes, it was flawed. However, the way they did Hester, do you remember Hester, the rabbit who she was the rabbit uh, demon oh. with um, who's was so perfect? She was um, the Western guy. Oh, Lee Scoresby. Lee Scoresby. Oh, yes. Okay. I remember that now. They did, they did them so well oh. that I literally started crying oh when I saw them. <laughs> That's so beautiful. 
So despite the rest of the flaws, but anyway, to go back to, I mean, yes, there are books you read as a kid that never leave Absolutely. you. And, and I feel like a lot of those books straddled these lines. Like they, they ask big questions about the universe. They had a, a slightly speculative or magical edge, but they were also really grounded in character. I'm also thinking about A Wrinkle in Time, The Giver. Um, mm. You know, th- those are just all in my bloodstream. And I feel so lucky that I was able to grow up reading them. Yeah. And I think that... Again, I mean, again, you could get into this chicken or the egg philosophical thing, but is it, did we love them so much because those questions were interesting to us or did those questions become interesting Mm -hmm. to us because we read them and then you go on to explore them as a writer? Yeah. I I mean, I think it's true. You're always, I mean, that's what's so amazing about reading is that you're shaped in real ways by what you read. And one of the themes in The Immortalists is the power of story and, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves, even though they're fiction in many cases, you know, is it a story if you believe it and you incorporate it into your life? And I think that is so true of what we take in, in terms of our reading lives. You really can become changed and that's just totally wild. I mean, that's a magic of its own. And in addition, I think the magic of creating these characters that you then relate to as a writer throughout the course of the book, like you kind of have to fall in love with them. And then it's it's hard to have difficult things happen to them yeah. or to watch them struggle. I wondered how that was for you. It was hard. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't share spoilers, I'm guessing. Okay. No. No spo- Well, don't spoil for them, but I think we can talk about your process yes. of Well, I will Yeah, I mean it is hard. It's hard to see them making decisions where, you know, I as well as the readers feel like stop, don't don't open the door. Um, but at the same time I I know that it wouldn't be a very interesting book if they just made all good decisions and lived really peaceful lives after getting this information. So um, trying to balance that, but I, I never felt like I was doing, like I was wrenching them into a decision that these characters wouldn't have made. I think real people often make bad decisions. You know, they we, we do things with information that we probably shouldn't and that our best selves wouldn't. So um so I, I think it's just part of my instinct as an author to follow follow those rabbit holes. Yeah, even when it's difficult as a person to watch it yeah. happen. I mean, I think it's it's hard not to fall in love with your characters. Oh, I'm glad. I love them too. <laughs> they still they're still hanging around in my thoughts. And and I the other thing I'd like to share, I mean, or to to discuss a little bit is the way you structured the book, which I thought was really fascinating and and effective. And I wondered if in coming up with the idea that these four siblings were going to be presented with this information, you then immediately knew you wanted to have sections that followed each of Mm -hmm. them afterwards. Yeah, that structure was always really clear to me from the start. And I think structure is important to me because it helps me to not be overwhelmed by a project. I always have been a a more natural novelist than a short story writer. So I really do enjoy having that kind of open space. But I also feel overwhelmed if it's just like totally endless and unbarricaded. So um, for my first book, it was in three parts and there were alternating kind of flashback and current uh like narrative sections and that helped me. And then this one was even more kind of stylized in that you have the prologue and then four sections and each one is a close third following the perspective of one sibling. Um, So I, 
I love uh, diving into multiple perspectives and thinking about how different people interpret the same event. And then, like I said, it kind of does double duty of giving me the kind of strictures that uh, that make me feel like I can do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's just it's great when an idea gives you that kind of permission because I could see you know there are so many ways that we're allowed to tell stories now as writers. It used to be like much more you know, there was a particular way to do it. You did it in third person. There was never present tense. You know, all these things were sort of off limits in writing. And now that so many more things are acceptable, I'm I'm always curious how people choose structure and if it was apparent because, you know, it could become overwhelming. Right. It's true. And, you know, I I did have, there are a couple moments in this book where I uh, switch perspectives. For the most part, the, like I said, the four sections are really, uh, kind of purely following each character. But in the first, I know it's in the second section, which is Clara's section, I do go into her mother's point of view for a few pages. And as I was doing it, I was like, this is so wrong. People are going to be like, you can't do this. But then I decided, I was like, but I know I'm doing it. So I think if you know the rule, you can break it. Uh, But yeah, I did have that sense. And I even talked about it with my editor, like, can I can I get away with this? Uh, but it's funny how, you know, when you do go through um, like so much training and when you are focused on technique, uh, you know, you there are these rules that you feel like, gulp, am I allowed to break it? Yeah, it's always fascinating. Like, I think there's a number of things, like sometimes even if you outline, you know, and you have a plan and you have a structure like you have in place, the characters may do things that you don't expect. And I think people who don't write don't get that because you think, I don't know if they're going to go along with this. And people say, well, aren't you the one writing the book? And (laughs) the same thing with the perspective is like, you know, oh my God, I needed to, the mom just needed to be there then. And you're like, well, but isn't that your decision? Because you're the writer and and it's not always like that. I know. It's so funny. We we definitely can... Uh, hold ourselves more accountable to these kinds of things than we have to. Um, And I think it's good to be aware of because, of course, you know, if you're not doing it intentionally and you have a point of view that's all over the place, that can be confusing to the reader. Uh, But I think as long as as long as you know what you're doing and you're doing it intentionally, go with the wind. Exactly. And I think especially in a first draft. Totally. Very true. Because, you know, you're allowed to do anything in a first draft and try it. And the worst thing that'll happen is you cut it out. I know. And it's so hard for me to remember that. I wish I was somebody who was like all about the shitty first drafts. And in fact, I'm all about like the perfect first draft, which is totally an illusion because I always make, you know, it, it goes through years of revision anyway. And so, but I think like I have to feel like what I've done is good enough that it's worth doing more. Like I, this is totally not like, this is totally not true, but in my head, it feels like if if I think that what I've done is like, maybe good, maybe I won't keep it, it feels like I'm dragging a trash bag behind me. And like, I don't want to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really admire people who are like, nope, this is for discovery. This is for playing around. Like, that is true. So don't listen to me. This is just my own struggle. Yeah, but I'm sure there are people who feel that way. So it's probably very validating <laughs> to hear that. I mean, I I go back and forth, yeah, I would say, yeah. for sure. What's your, what, how do you kind of approach drafting in general? Well, I'm, I'm really right now, um, I think, well, one thing we could talk about too, is that you wrote both your first book and 
your second, I think, or or at least part of it, I think you got started with a day mm-hmm. job and then were able to be in a different mm-hmm. situation. So I'm, I am curious about how that changed. So I'm in that position now where I'm writing sort of around mm-hmm. other projects and an, uh, around other work. So I've come up with these crazy methods to struggle it in. And I've, I've just, I've discovered that I'm actually pretty good at dictation oh. and I can walk to work. So I thought this would be really cumbersome, but I've started dictating like scenes and then it's so magical to me to plug the thing in and then to watch it appear on the page with all the punctuation wow. that I said. And there that is it is. really interesting. And then I don't, yeah. And I don't edit in my head as much because when I'm sitting there, I start thinking, oh, well, maybe I could do that better. Oh, that could be better. Uh, and this time I'm just like, what's the character right. actually doing? And I just describe what I see them doing in my head. And then it seems to work really That's well. That's awesome. I we'll mean, it, you know, whatever works like that is we all have, uh, as long as we all have our ways of fitting it in. And you're right. It's hard to do with other jobs. And I mean, that's, I think when you want to become a writer, you assume, or at least I did, that you'll always be having a bunch of different jobs because it's just generally not a, a lucrative field. And I grew up with a with a mom who was a stage actor and she, you know, rarely got paid for what she did. If she did, it was a small stipend. And uh, so she was always working multiple gigs. And um, when I was writing the first book, I was both in, I was in the MFA. So I was teaching um, for tuition remission and, and then some income. And I did a little bit of teaching at the college level after the MFA, but as I'm sure your listeners know, adjuncting is just incredibly low paying. So I moved into another low paying field, that of nonprofits, <laughs> which is kind of a kind of a fluke. <laughs> I, I was job searching and there was a there was a listing for an administrative assistant and that's what I did for uh, until this book sold and I had the incredible, wacky good fortune of being able to leave in rightful time. I, I worked uh, as an executive assistant for a health nonprofit and then for a nonprofit that supports victims of domestic violence. And both of those were really meaningful jobs. It, it felt good to be doing something that was community focused and outward facing because writing is so sort of self-fulfilling in a way. And, um, and I highly recommend administrative assistant jobs to anyone who is writing because they use a lot of the same skills. Uh, you know, it's communication, it's writing organization, but you don't have the burden of like a high ranking position or a leadership role. It's, it's a supportive role. Uh, and so I, I mean, there were definitely challenges, especially because both of those jobs were not the kind of thing where I wouldn't take work home. Like they were emotional, heavy, tough jobs in certain ways. But I think it also worked really well for that time. That's hilarious. That's exactly oh what my, gosh. my day job is. See, it's the best. I mean, it's hard. But, it's d- so but do funny. you find the same thing? Like that it's a good like compliment or balance like for having to have a day job? Well, I think this is always the tension with day jobs is that on the one hand, you want to be using your writing skills and you want to be in there. But I have had prior to doing um, support, exec assistant roles, I was doing editing mm-hmm. and proofreading and working in, you know, different places. I was, you know, an editor of a publication um, 
non-literary. It was an auction catalog. And I found it much harder. I didn't, I wasn't, I don't think I was even writing a book at all then because so much of that part of my brain was exhausted Mm -hmm. because I was thinking about proofreading and kerning Mm -hmm. and all of these things. And to think about writing was exhausting. But in this, when it's just writing emails and calendaring and scheduling and booking travel and all this kind of stuff, I do have a lot more Mm -hmm. of my brain left over. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. And and I think I felt that when I was teaching too. When you're constantly reading student work, or as you say, editing work, it does pull from the same place. So I think it was a little bit of a relief to be like, my job is, you know, I do a ton of scheduling. I'm on Outlook all the time. Like, and it also made me feel like a professional person in a way that writing full-time does not. Like, full disclosure, I'm in my bathrobe right now, which is like awesome and it's a luxury, but it's also, you know, it can be really isolating. And and I also have, you know, I have guilt about the fact that I'm able to do this. I, I like I said, it was something I never expected. Who knows how long it will last? But growing up, like I said, with a with a mom who was an artist and feeling like you know, part of being an artist is that you're is that you're not you're not fully supported by it. Um, you know, I, I'm conscious of of how much work it is for people who you know, who have to write around the edges of a very full professional life. I, I, it fascinates me. Full disclosure, I'm also in my bathrobe. Oh, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, that's hilarious. And also, I think this is something that's so important to talk about is that no one that I know of, I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. Mm. None of my lawyer friends feel guilty about like, oh, now I get to go to court right. or now I get to do this. Or doctor friends are like, ooh, now I'm seeing patients. I can't believe it. But there is something that gets burdened on top of writers that like, oh, now I'm really here. I've done the work. I've done the training. I've written a book, which is, you know, gargantuan compared to what, you know, most professions require of you. Mm. And then to feel like, like it's working out. There is this consistent like, oh, like, there's both joy in it and also I think guilt and and it's hard to enjoy it. You're so right. You know, and I think you bring up such a good point and it connects for me to this idea that if you love what you do, you shouldn't really expect to be compensated for it fairly. Or if you do, you're just like really lucky. And, and I, and I think, you know, we are lucky when we are able to do what we love, but it's a ton of work and you should be compensated for your labor. It's only been in the past maybe year that I've started turning down writing assignments that don't pay. That's crazy. And that's so, I mean, I know for so many writers, like that's still something that they can't afford to do because you need the byline credit. And I'm sure, I mean, if, if the New York times, the New Yorker said, you know, yeah, we'll take this piece, but unfortunately we can't pay you. I would, do it in a heartbeat. I wouldn't even think about it. I would be like, I'll pay you. But this is like a sign of how artistic labor is treated. And uh, I think in general, just in the arts, the idea of payment and fair payment is really shrouded in mystery. I think in the publishing world, there's no sense of what an average advance is. I certainly didn't know going into either of my book deals. And when I talk about it with friends who are writers, we're all kind of whispering together like, you know, we like that is the network through which you find things out. There's no standard and there's no above board uh, information about how a lot of that works. Yeah. And I don't know that anybody knows how that's calculated. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I think even 
it's this weird alchemy of like, partly, you know, the profit and loss, partly like how much the editor loves it. it. It's so subjective, partly how much competition there is, which like, you know, who knows what that's about and how that happens. So yeah, it's a weird, you know, in every other profession, it's very above board. You know what the average salary is. You know what you should expect to be making after you've been working in the field for five years or 10 years. And for us, we're like, oh my God, you're going to pay me? Like, thank you. Bless you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's especially in, I mean, to go big picture for a minute, but I think about, I can't help but thinking about, I don't know if you've seen um, Ken Robinson, who is an education administrator. He has this TED talk that went viral. And one of the things that he says in it as like the developer of the UK's education system at this stage, or at least trying to revolutionize it, is creativity is as valuable as literacy and should be valued Mm -hmm. as such. Mm -hmm. Because we're trying to train kids for a world, we don't know what it's going to look like in five years. We have no idea. Mm -hmm. And yet, we're still those of us who grew up, you know, in the 80s, 90s, you know, feel like, (gasps) like, creativity is a luxury Mm -hmm. rather than an essential skill and and for writers who can imagine whole worlds and frequently imagine worlds that end up happening. Mm. You know, you think about all of the technology or ideas or mystery or magic that's written written about in a book and then to go back to the crossover between literature and science, whether or not those of us who are writing it know that much about science, that's almost the chance where new things get invented. Mm-hmm. And a scientist reading that novel might say, you know what, I think I kind of know how to make that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. And I I feel like we have to remember as writers that what we're doing has cultural value, that it isn't just making people up in our heads. And I struggle with that too. I mean, I think especially when I was working in social services, <clears throat> I was looking at these people who do direct service and who are really on the front lines. And I was like, I'm, I'm like indulging myself by writing these characters. And what I try to remember is that the books I read, as we have discussed, have shaped me. I know that for a fact. And so I believe that that it's possible. Um, but it is, you know, I think you're right. It's a really important conversation to have and to keep reminding ourselves that what we do isn't just fluffy and fun and like a, like a hobby. Yeah. And it's, I think I find it both refreshing and kind of heartbreaking to hear it from you who has this, you know, well-positioned, beautiful book that, by the way, the cover is gorgeous and that, you know, is going to be everywhere for people to see Um, as they're listening to this, you can go and find the book that it, that, that doubt doesn't leave you. And I think that says something about the way we need to value the artists and value creativity and value writers in our culture. Because if we think about like who we would be not having read The Golden Compass mm-hmm. and and his dark materials, like I would be a lesser person mm-hmm. if I hadn't read that book. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And I, I think that it goes to show you that we all, you know, I think at every at every level of writing, we all struggle with some of the same things. And, you know, I still count myself as being at the, at the beginning of my career. And I feel like it's only been certainly only when I had the first book published, did I feel like I could call myself a writer, even though I'd been writing for, you know, most of my life and had some small publications before that. So, uh, yeah, this is not a, this is not a culture that centers 
the arts and it's increasingly moving toward these STEM fields. But I still have faith. And I think what we're seeing, especially in the past couple of years, is this incredible art that's coming out and speaking to this time in history, whether that's uh, books or it's shows like The Handmaid's Tale that are really like capturing this cultural moment and inspiring a lot of conversation. And so I hope that will give all of us creators uh, a sense of optimism and faith that what we're doing is powerful. Yes, and I, it is. I mean, I think especially with your book, I mean, there is a way that everybody has had something happen to them when they were young that defined them, whether it's a visit to a fortune teller who said, this is the day you're going to die um, or not. I think that having some information or some formative thing and then looking at how these characters, I mean, that really does have the potential to change how people see their lives. Mm -hmm. I think it certainly would for, for me. And, and when you're a child, you're just open to that sense of magic and possibility. Uh, So yeah, in the same way that, that this impacts the gold siblings, I think books, books do that for us at that age too. Yeah, and I think they still have the power to do it as true, adults. True, true, yes. And so I I hope, my hope for you and my hope for everyone listening is that we still see how important books are and see how, um, that there would be a loss if if the books weren't written. And that it isn't, I, I, I really believe that it's story that shapes our culture and the way that mm-hmm. we decide to tell stories mm-hmm. of experience. And it's every bit as important as what anyone mm-hmm. else is doing. I think that's beautifully put, and especially right now. So I I couldn't agree more. So as we're wrapping up, um, I know you're on, I've seen your website, you're on like a crazy book tour all over the place, which is very (laughs) exciting. And um, I'm wondering, do you have another idea percolating or are you giving yourself a break after this for a little bit? A little bit of both. I am working on the next book, but it's been it's been hard. It's been uh, a very different experience from working on my first book because I this this uh, pre-publication and publicity experience has been so amazing and immense. And and I will be uh, heading out on this tour. So I, I put it to bed a couple weeks ago. I was like, I'm not even going to try right now. Like, it's just too much. Uh, but but I have it. And and I think it's going to be really, really comforting to come back and just burrow in again after after things die down. Yeah, I, I can't wait to to hear how that goes. And I'm so glad that we got to speak about the book. I hope everyone checks it out. Um, We will have links in the show notes. And we will also link to the article we discussed that she wrote for Poets and Writers, which I think is very inspiring and helpful to sort of deconstruct what, you know, quote, everyone says about how it's going to go. I think questioning those, everybody says this is how it's going to go is always absolutely. And and to any writers who are listening, I mean, I, I think I'm proof that it might not be until the third book you write that that things start taking off for you. And I've had the full gauntlet of experiences from a novel that was turned down by every publisher who saw it to uh, to a novel that is now kind of um, fulfilling my my hopes for it in this incredible, you know, incredible way. So uh, it, it can it can happen no matter what the journey is like for you. It's never one size fits all. Nobody's is the same and you don't have to have the big splashy debut. You just got to keep working. 
Yeah. And then if it's the third book that hits, then you have a whole back catalog waiting to, um, to put out it's as true. well. It's true. It's true. That's, that's definitely a fun perk. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been really wonderful oh, speaking with you. you this is such a treat. It's so wonderful to talk with a fellow writer and I'm, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.